Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. I always follow on Facebook, you know, how people always ruin shows like, you know, Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead. It always amazes me when people aren't talking about some really good shows. I've been watching this show called Tyrant. If you're not watching it on FX, it's just good TV. And you have to go check it out. And another show that people don't watch, which I don't understand, is a show with just this season just ended called Wayward Pines. It's dark. It, first season, Matt Dillon. This season, has Jason Patrick. It's just really good shows. And I, I always crack up when I see nobody talking about these shows because I consider many of my uh, Facebook friends intelligent people. You know, they're all pretty smart. I mean, there are some idiots, but most of them are smart. And it just bothers me when people don't talk about the TV shows that I really think should be being talked about. So anyway, we have enough about that. We have a, we have a, we have a great show today, and we're actually a, we're skyping my home state of New Jersey. And my guest is Mike Dugan. How you doing, Mike? Good. I just wrote down uh, Wayward Pines on my notepad because I want to consider myself one of your, your smart friends on Facebook. It's it's a show that you know when you when you watched it, like me and Joanne watched it last year, and we're like, ah, eh, we'll see. And it's dark, and it's based on a, a book, and it's. Uh, it's good. It's got a good storyline, and nobody's talking about it. It's very weird when you see shows that you consider good, and and you see no buzz because you know on Facebook there's buzz about everything. Yeah. What so, is it? Small town intrigue. Uh, yeah, small town intrigue with a little sci-fi twist. I'm not a big sci-fi guy, but it's uh, it's one of those shows you sit there and you go, wow, and, and it's got a bunch of different. Uh, Plot turns and it's just just watch it. You'll like it, Mike. You'll like it. All right, good. Thanks. And you and you now. Where are you in New Jersey? Are you are you lo- living in Princeton? Is that where you live? Yeah, I live in Princeton. I grew up in Ramsey, but I, I was out of there for a long time on the West Coast. Because I'm a Cherry Hill. Where are you guy. from? I'm from Cherry Hill. I grew up. Oh, I right. went to Cherry well, Hill East. My my kids, my kids turtles in Cherry Hill right now. There you we go. We donated the turtle uh, over the winter a bunch of years ago. We donated the turtle to the, um, I don't know, some kid's science museum or something in Cherry Hill. See, that's good. So that we everyone's got a connection to Cherry Hill. <laughs> yeah. So as a kid, I know you you, you did, you did you the stand-up, you've, you've been a writer. When you were a kid, were you funny or were you one of these guys who wasn't sure if you would do comedy? Or, or when did you start getting interested in comedy? What age would you think you were? Well, you know, it's funny because I kind of just realized something in the last year was I was, uh, we'd say, precocious or obnoxious when I was a kid in school. I was reading encyclopedias for hours a day when I was four years old. And when I got to kindergarten, I couldn't believe nobody could read. And so I was very bored in school. So what I'd find myself doing was uh, I would the teacher would start a sentence and then I would finish it in a direction they didn't expect it to be, which I'm sure irritated the teachers. But it occurred to me that I've been doing set up punch forever. That's funny. So now, now why would you know? You... It would just I'd hit the straight line and I'd take it in another direction. So I realized that I, I've been doing that since I was about six, probably. Well, what gravitated you towards the? Uh... The encyclopedia. I mean, I know for me, like when I was three or four, I like scallops, and that's just odd. You know, ah. like kids don't like scallops. What I mean, the encyclopedia. First of all, we're intimidated, and that's some hard reading. How did did you just pick one up one day? Yeah, I just my parents had the. I think they. I think they bought it, and so it was an exciting purchase at the time, and I was drawn to it, and I'd just lie on the living room floor and read the thing for hours a day, and just go all the way through it. But, uh, you know, I like learning. I like the world's a pretty cool place, you know. 
So you're learning at this young age. Now, are you doing well in school studies too, or are you just basically instead of being too hip for the room, are you too smart for the room? No, I was doing. I was doing all right. I skipped third grade, and uh, and pretty much, uh, you know, I did well in school without really trying. I did well in those. Remember those standardized tests we used to get? Oh yeah, it was a national, and it was graded on um, percentile, and ninety nine was the highest percentile. And I got a ninety nine in math, and ninety nine in verbal, and ninety nine in verbal reasoning, and a thirty five in clerical. So I've got all of this abstract reasoning and no filing system. It's uh, just tailor made for ADD. That's so funny because I know when I was uh, when I, I was in advanced math classes in high school. But I sucked at geometry. Like I remember, I was like the only freshman in this class, and I got a D. And my mom made me go to summer school, and it was awful because you know most kids didn't go to advanced. I, I had like seniors in the class, like guys who couldn't pass geometry. But there's certain things when you are advanced. If you take, if you test advanced, there are certain subjects. A lot of times, there's gonna be one that you're weak in. You reminded me uh, uh, of something. A couple of weeks ago, I drove by a sign that said, uh, in front of a church, I guess, it said, Vacation Bible School. And my daughter was my 12-year-old daughter was in the car. I said, how many of the kids in that Bible school think it's a vacation? <laughs> <laughs> so so you're, you're testing good in comedy, I mean, in, uh, in school. Now, what are your, as you start getting in high school, what are, what are your goals? Do you Are you going to go to college? Are you going to write? What do you think you wanted to do, let's say, when... Like Mike Dugan's like a junior in high school with the advanced good good grades. Uh, I wanted to design bongs in high school. <laughs> I just smoked a lot of pot in high school. The zigzag man had a tattoo of me on his arm. <laughs> I just I just started partying in high school a lot. And, uh, you know, the whole school thing, I just wasn't enjoying it at all. So I just you know, got kind of wild. And it was a it was a hippie time, you know. It was I graduated in '75, so you know I was growing up when the Vietnam War protests were happening and everything. And I just uh, I was uh, I was countercultural to an extent, you know. Grateful Dead concerts, all that stuff. Now, when did you start getting an interest in comedy and stand up comedy? Well, I'll tell you exactly. I was uh, I was skiing. I used to ski race. And I lived in Killington, Vermont for a winter, and I was uh, I was practicing GS turns, uh, giant slalom turns through moguls. Got up to about thirty mile an hour, thirty miles an hour, and I blew out into the woods and hit a tree sideways uh, with my legs with, and broke my femur in half and landed on my back. And the tree was next to my leg, and my boot was on the other side of the tree, still in the binding next to my head. And uh, I almost died from that. That's a long story, but. While I was recuperating, I was watching TV and I saw the HBO Young Comedian special with, um, I know Paul Provenza was on it, I think uh, Harry uh, the Magician. Blackstone? Night. No. No, uh, the, uh, uh, I can't think of I know, I can't think of Harry something, I know. Yeah, he had his own TV show. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I can't find uh, yeah, Harry, a couple of others. George Wallace may have been on that. Um, uh, Rick Overton was on that one. I think it was 82. And I thought, I, I just, it hit me. I was like, I can do that. And I thought, uh, I still had like another year of recovery from that leg. <clears throat> and I thought, well, one of the ways to get good at something is to know 
as much as you possibly can about it. So I was recovering the next winter in Cape Cod, and I was alone on the beach with my beach house with my dog. And I would uh, I read about 130 books on playwriting and public speaking and theories of comedy and memory memory books and things like that, and just started writing comedy. And then I started performing it. Now, where were you hitting? What stages back then? Was it where you would you start out in New York, or where were you going to? The first time I went to uh, Boston was my first open mic. I went to the Comedy Connection in Boston, and uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name who brought me up. <clears throat> You'd know who he was, but uh, I did it there, and then I did it a couple more times there, and then I went down to New York and performed uh, a couple of places there. Or addition at the uh, improv there, and then I went to um, I went to Utah and skied and stayed there for about another two years and did an open uh, did a did a comedy night on a Tuesday night. I started a comedy night there at a club, and we started flying in people uh, from people who were in between clubs. We'd do a Tuesday night and bring in people for, on Southwest Airlines. We'd fly them in from. Uh, Denver. So we got a lot of great people. Uh, Roseanne Barr, before she did the Tonight Show, was there. Uh, Judy Tenuta, Emo Phillips. Um, let me see a bunch of others. And uh, and so I started doing it there, and then I moved to L.A. to pursue it. And I, I did an open mic at the Improv, and I reminded Paul Provenza that I had seen him in New York, and then I had also seen him perform up on Cape Cod. And throughout the night, you know, I wasn't going on, and throughout the night, the audience was getting smaller and smaller, and he'd come up, he's like, you going on yet? I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. And he talked to Howard, who was emceeing, and said, hey, put the, this guy up. So he, uh, Howard put me up, and there was, I don't know, Paul brought in a lot of comedians, and I just sat on the edge of the stage and talked, and then we hung out afterwards outside and closed the place down and hung out for a couple hours. And he, I had just moved to Los Angeles, like, I'm like, weeks earlier and he gave me like 10 or 20 reasons why I should start in New York and why New York would be a better place for me to start and I said Paul I just made a life-altering decision to move everything to LA are you telling me it's worth it to go to New York and he said yeah and within a week I moved to New York and started out there so you actually wow so you moved and then you just packed your shit up and went back to New York yeah, Paul said, go to New York. You know, he said, in L.A., you're, especially at that time in L.A., you're competing stage time. You're competing with people like, you know, Robin and Billy Crystal and Rodney Dangerfield and all these top guys, and it's just not a place to develop like New York would have been, and it made perfect sense. So that's what I did, and then I passed an audition to Catch a Rising Star, and uh, I passed on the same night Chris Rock did. Wow. Whatever happened to that kid? Anything? I don't know, man. I saw it at the comic strip once, I think. I don't know. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, they passed four people that year. It was me, Chris Rock, Brett Butler, and Colin Quinn. Okay, so so you did. Okay. No, I answered phones there. I took reservations for about nine months. And I never really did any of the Jersey gigs or anything. And um, Ron Darian, do you remember him? I remember, yeah, I think I, I may have worked with Andy Scarpatti gig. Ron was doing a lot of colleges, and he needed an opening act. And I had a pretty strong 15 or 20 minutes for, a, you know, a kid just starting out. And he said, why don't, you, uh, why don't you open for me? So I was able to go out and make like two or $300 a night doing the colleges with him. So I was able to bypass that. 
you know, bypassed a lot of those crap Jersey gigs. And they were crap. I remember when I did stand-up, I played a bunch from the White House Junction and all these places. You're like, oh, my God. You pop in, and they were like 60 or 80 bucks a night. So you, you went to good route. Yeah, and they go, well, it's, you know, it's great experience. And I'm like, well, great experience for working shitholes. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess that's a little pompous, but, you know, it made sense at the time. And then I got to know uh, Dennis Miller. He had just come into town, and he was starting to work in Saturday Night Live. And uh, uh, and we became friends. And I guess about two years after I was at Catch, I was doing New York for about two years, all the clubs in New York. And then uh, he had done a benefit for Jane Dornacker, I think was her name. She had died in a helicopter crash in San Francisco, and he went up there and uh and did a benefit and he came back to new york he said you should be in san francisco he said san francisco is an unbelievable comedy town you need to go there and uh i went to i moved to san francisco now did you feel there was a difference from new york or did you feel you were ready to when you moved to san fran i mean what was the difference in the towns back then what was the climate of comedy uh san francisco was was a lot looser a lot more experimental. There was a much stronger community. Uh, but also the big difference I thought at the time was the performance dynamic style that was going on in New York was almost kind of confrontational, uh, where, you know, it was a bit of an alpha male thing where it was like, you know, I've, uh, I'm the comedian, you're the audience, I'll tell you what, you know, it was pretty much that. And in San Francisco, I found it was more like, um, you know, I'm the performer, you're the audience, but uh, we're in this together. Come on, let's go take a ride. You know, look at that over there. Look at this over there. It was a lot, it was a lot softer and it was more inclusive. It wasn't as much, um, it, there just wasn't, it wasn't as much of a wall, I think, between you and the audience. There was a, I don't know, I don't know the words, but it's kind of a masculinity to the one in, in New York. You know, I mean, like Belzer, picture Belzer. And, uh, and and what, what his performance dynamic was like. And that was it was just a lot softer in San Francisco. Now, so you were digging that scene. Were you, were you getting a lot of stage time up there? Oh, yeah. It, it worked out pretty well. I, um, I moved out there. I had one booking at the Holy City Zoo. And I, I did a set there. And the guy who owned the Holy City Zoo was named Bob Fisher, not the Ice House Bob Fisher. He owned the Holy City Zoo, and he was a personal manager. And he uh, he developed a lot of comedians. He he had uh, Paula Poundstone, Ellen DeGeneres, uh, A. Whitney Brown, uh, Rob Schneider, Barry Sobel. Um, there were a lot of comics that he developed. Bob Goldthwait, and uh, he took me under his wing. And as soon as I performed in at his club, he said, "Come on!" And he put me on his motorcycle, and we drove down to um, Cobb's. It wasn't in the cannery at the time, um, and he introduced me to Tom Sawyer, and then I just started getting a lot of work there. Now, did you want to stay in San Fran, or did you know you were going to have to eventually go to L.A. or back to New York? What was? Well, I thought I I liked San Francisco, but what happened for me in San Francisco was uh, two years after I got there, I won the San Francisco International Stand Up Comedy Competition. And it was uh, it was right. That was in 1988, fall of '88, and and that was when comedy was just as about as huge as it was going to get. And it was huge in San Francisco to begin with. I mean, they do a comedy day in the park, comedy celebration day in the park every 
every year. And back then there was, you know, I don't know, 100,000 people, 80 or 100,000 people going into Golden Gate Park for the comedy. I mean, it was big comedy scene. And uh, the finals, it's a month-long event, and the finals were at with five comics at Davies Symphony Hall in front of 3,000 people sold out both nights. And, uh, and I won. And one of the... Uh, one of the judges was Perry Simon, the head of comedy development at NBC, and uh, he hooked me up with NBC, and I just I immediately signed with uh, with William Morris, and just started getting opportunities. And then William Morris did a showcase, and uh, Jim McCauley was there, and he pulled me aside and said, "Come on outside." He said, "I I, I see." four Tonight Show sets there. Come into the office on Tuesday and we'll put some material together and get you on the show. And at that point, that was four and a half years into when I, after when I had started doing stand-up. Well, officially, after I had gone into New York, you know, so, in 85. So you got the Tonight Show four and a half years in, which is pretty unheard of. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of people, you know, 10 or 15 years and they were doing Carson and it just, everything happened pretty quick. I was also, during that period, I was also a Star Search finalist, me against Al Lou Bell for 100 grand. Oh, man, that's funny. And, it's, so, uh, it's so funny to talk about Star Search because uh, Steve McGrew was on a few weeks ago and he said he, he beat Louis C.K. in Star Search. Oh, uh, that's funny. You know, if you watch some of Louis C.K.'s older stuff, I mean, the real, really older stuff, you know, late 80s, early 90s, that kind of stuff, he was always a great writer, but he was always fairly taciturn in his delivery. And I, I would say the huge difference between now, I mean, of course, he's matured and he's become an unbelievable comedian. But uh, if you notice now, he's got, every moment's got a different smile, a different twinkle in the eye. And that was, if you look at some of his old performances from some of those shows in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, none of that is there. He's just a guy who talks. So, um, so you lost? Did you, lo- did you lose to Al LaBelle? I lost to Al LaBelle for the 100 grand. And so, but it had to have helped your career because you were in the finals. And back then, everybody watched Star Search. Yeah, I guess that it did. It was funny. It just kind of fell in my lap. My my manager, you know, Bob Fisher, he said, he said, oh, you should do Star Search. He said, you know, it'll give you some, it'll give you some 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 uh, television experience, and you know, you'll get a chance to work in front of the cameras. And and what happened was they banked them all. I think everything happened. I got there at the end of the season, and everything happened in about two and a half weeks. I was doing the preliminaries and then the semifinals and then the finals, and I, I swear it was only about two and a half weeks of, uh, and then all of a sudden it was it was there. Now, but, oh, go ahead. Now, no, we, I, I just the, the Carson thing. We were on the Carson thing, so Macaulay calls me into the office, and we go into we go into the material, and he says, "I like this, I like this," and we go over it, and then I call him up uh, a couple days later. And I said, well, uh, you know, this is the set, and I ran it by him on the phone. He said, great, <clears throat> you're on the show Friday night. We'll see you then. And I said, you don't, you don't want me to, see, you don't want to see me do it in a club or anything. He goes, nope, it's a great set. See you Friday. You're going to do great. And uh, and I went on, and uh, Johnny liked it a lot. So then I did it again. Now, what's that like? I mean, you know, people don't. I try to explain to some comics like what the Tonight Show was back then. That was like you know with Johnny. I mean that was the thing. Were you nervous as hell before you went on stage, or did you know you were going to do well? I mean, what was your thoughts before you went on stage on the Tonight Show? I'll tell you, it's a great question, Steve, because 
I got probably the best advice anybody could have gotten prior to this. And Mark Schiff gave me this advice, and he got it from Seinfeld. And Mark told me, he said, ask Macaulay if you can come in the night before your show and pretend you're going on that night. So Macaulay let me come in, and I got there, and I walked outside, and I saw everyone, all the audience lining up for the show, and my heart started pounding. And then I went backstage, and then I looked out through the curtain and saw everybody loading into the, into the audience, and my heart was pounding. Uh, oh, before the audience came in, though, the band was rehearsing, and I got up and I ran through my set on the spot while the band was playing so i familiarized myself with that so then they uh, uh the show starts and you know ed mcmahon makes the announcement <clears throat> excuse me ed mcmahon makes the announcement and my heart's just pounding you know and uh so the next night i show up there and i'm like i've done this before <laughs> <laughs> And I was just, because that's what Jeff Martyr remarked on, that I just looked so comfortable. And it was because of that great advice from Mark that uh, that I was comfortable. I, I got, a, you know, all the nervousness was the night before, and I was comfortable in the environment. And I just got up there and talked. So, yeah, I mean, I was a little nervous, but nothing like I would have been if I had just shown up cold that night for the first time. Now, how, what happened after the Tonight Show? Did you, did certain, did you... I mean, you already signed with a good agency and stuff like that, but did, certain, did you get certain breaks from The Tonight Show? Because back then, The Tonight Show made a big difference. I would say, I mean, uh, you know, I started opening for people like Bobby Vinton up in, uh, up in Reno. I opened for Bobby Vinton for two weeks. That came through William Morris and because of The Tonight Show. But you also, you got a picture of what it was, too, when you said you know the tonight show with johnny what that was like back then but also that was the height of the comedy boom so i was going out for for good money you know clubs were paying good money then and i was doing a lot of corporates you know i had my name was getting pretty big in san francisco so i was doing a lot of corporates for like uh you know oracle i i performed at um steve wozny in steve wozniak's living room I was doing a lot of opening work for um, winery concert series in the area, and uh, yeah, and then and I was also uh, auditioning. I was going straight to producer on a lot of roles and sitcoms and things like that. But but I, you know, I was green. I didn't have any acting chops. How'd you get into the corporate gigs? I mean, was it, it just because back then? I mean, I'm sure you know it wasn't like when we were doing stand up when the clubs were taking off. You didn't really. Th- a lot of people didn't really know about corporate gigs. Were you approached for that? Because corporate gigs are supposed to be amazing. Yeah, but also, you know, Bob Fisher owning the Holy City Zoo and stuff. He was kind of a uh, he was kind of a lightning rod. He was like the center of center of San Francisco stand up back then. So, uh, and he was doing a lot of bookings like that. So it, that stuff, it, it's amazing, really, looking back, how much of it just fell into my lap. And everything was coming my way, so it's hard to say what influence what influence created that. You know, having the Tonight Show under my belt with Carson that certainly helped a lot. But it's hard to discern exactly which opportunities were attached to that. It all kind of happened at once. I have a. I actually, I was thinking about this last week. I told somebody this story last week, and uh, I, I'll share it with you. I've always been kind of reticent about sharing it because it sounds a little self-aggrandizing, but you'll appreciate it for what it is. 
when I did my second Tonight Show a year later with Carson. Uh, I, now, I got to go back and look at the tape, but I have a feeling that I was on the TV show. I was on Carson the night that he decided that he was going to quit the show. And I'll tell you why. So, uh, I get up and I do my, first off, the show opens up and he does his monologue and nothing's happening. It's just a dead audience. And you can see that he's frustrated, he's a little irritated. Tries a couple of savers, that doesn't work real well. <clears throat> goes to commercial, comes back and goes to do a desk set piece where he's got the papers in front of him and he starts reading off the jokes on the desk set and and he's not getting anything. And you can see that he's just irritated. And he, he stops it probably about halfway through what it would have been. He stops and you know how he's done this before where he's, you know, he picks up one of the papers person goes nah not that one and sets it aside and nah not that one and sets it aside and then there's this long uncomfortable pause and he picks up the papers you know how he straightens them out by banging them on the desk a little bit to organize them and and there's this long uncomfortable pause and he says you know i always wondered if this day would ever come where i just don't care and he meant it wow and everyone knew he meant it. And he said, we'll be right back. So I get up and I, when I did my set, and after the show, Johnny's waiting for me in the wings. And he comes up and he says, that was a great set. Oh, oh, I didn't tell you that. You know, I did the set, but it was nothing like the first one. You know, when the first one, when it goes, it's orgasmic on that show. And it was okay, but it was work. And he's waiting for me in the wings. He says, that was a great set. And I said, really? It didn't feel like it. He said, no. And that was a, that was a really lousy audience. He said, you, you did really well. He said, you saved the show. So that's the part that sounds a little aggrandizing. But in context, it's pretty cool to have Johnny Carson tell you, you saved the show. Because, I mean, that's such a classic line, you oh, know. Yeah, it's, I mean, hell, you'd be happy if Joe Franklin said you saved the show. You're like, hey, I saved ah. the show. So, so now, what, <laughs> now when did you parlay into writing? Because I know, I know you've won an Emmy, but when did all the writing start? Uh, in 1994, Dennis Miller uh, was starting his HBO uh, show Dennis Miller Live on HBO and he, he uh, called me up and asked me if I wanted to write on it and I wrote on the first season which was uh, actually no before that uh, I had performed at the you see I knew Roseanne Barr from from Salt Lake when she came into Salt Lake in fact I sold cable TV door to door to her parents when I was living in Salt Lake <laughs> and uh, you know I go in and I sit down and you go it's time to sell the movie channels I'm like do you like Showtime do you like HBO do you like stand up comedy they're like yeah our daughter's a stand up comedian and, and uh, so that was uh, that was Roseanne and uh, where was I with that I just segued into something that had no ending writing about you knew Roseanne before Dennis Yes, yeah, so Tom Arnold, this was when she was with Tom, and I was at the Santa Monica Improv, and Tom came up to me, and he said, hey, I just wanted to let you know that Roseanne and I are big fans of yours. And I said, oh, cool, thanks. And then I bumped into him another time, and we were talking, and he goes, hey, you ever written a sitcom? He had Jackie Thomas on at the time. He said, you ever written a sitcom? And I said, no. He said, do you want to? And I said, yeah, sure. He goes, all right, come in on Wednesday and talk to this guy, this producer, and uh, we'll hook you up and you'll write a script. 
and I went in and I talked to the guy and I pitched a bunch of shows and what the one I show the one I the main one I pitched they actually took and, and had somebody else write it and then they gave me a topic but uh, I wrote that and uh, it was it paid fourteen thousand five hundred what happens is I think WGA rules if I recall correctly is that every season they have to give two new writers an opportunity to write a script and that's just to allow people the the ingress to writing otherwise you know i mean it's just a pretty closed system of friends that give each other jobs so he gave me that opportunity and uh, paid 14.5 and got me into the union and got me insurance and that was great and then when dennis was uh, putting together his hbo show he called me up and asked me if i wanted to write on the show and we wrote uh, six episodes that first season, and one of them was nominated for an Emmy, and we won. Who, so, pretty cool. Who was on that staff? Do you remember? Was, Ces- uh, was Cesario yeah, on that yeah. staff? What, who? Cesario? Yeah, that was one of the ones. Uh, Jeff Cesario was on it, Eddie Feldman, and, uh, a guy named Gregory Greenberg. Uh, Kevin Rooney was the powerhouse, though. You know him? Yeah, he's, he was on my show a while, a while back. Yeah, Rooney's a monster. Rooney Rooney wrote all of that stuff. All, all of the rants you can figure Rooney wrote him. He, you know, everybody would contribute stuff. We'd get the topic and people would write some stuff. But Rooney would stick a pair of uh, headphones on for about 90 minutes and then come out with this brilliant rant. And then, you know, we'd hang a couple of ornaments on his tree. But... But you can figure Rooney was uh, Rooney was the, was the workhorse behind all of that stuff. Now, as you were writing for the show, were you still doing stand up? Were you still getting out on the road, or were you just concentrating on writing? No, I actually didn't do much uh, stand up while I was writing. Not on that show. And then after I won the Emmy, I signed with APA, and uh, Jim Kellum was head of comedy development there and packaging and then we put together a sitcom for me to star in and pitch that out to, to a bunch of uh to a bunch of the production studios and, and no one bit and i did that but then after that i got uh i think the next show was the stephanie miller show okay remember when she had a talk show yeah so i did the, i got on the stephanie miller show staff and then uh uh, worked on that for a while. Now, the great thing about working on Stephanie Miller was Ann Beats was the executive producer. Ann Beats of the two Emmy Awards for the first seasons of Saturday Night Live. She wrote most of um, uh, most of Gilda Radner's stuff. And with, um, I can't think of her name offhand, but they were kind of a comedy writing team. Rosie Schuster. She wrote with her, but uh, Ann Beach was absolutely just brilliant, unbelievable comedy chomps. I- I've never seen anybody take a black marker to a sketch as with the facility that she did, and every one of them, every one of her remarks and marks on those on, on any of the sketches were just brilliant and dead on. So that was a great working experience. So. You're doing this writing, and now, now when did you decide to leave the L.A.? Oh, I was in L.A. Uh, yeah, I was in L.A. that whole time. I, know, but I moved to L.A. I moved to L.A. in, 
Well, you know what I did after I won this, the comedy competition? I kept my, uh, my place in San Francisco, and then I got a studio apartment in Beverly Hills. So I was doing a lot of commuting back and forth for about that first year. And then I was performing in uh, I was performing in San Francisco at the Punchline in the Embarcadero, and Taylor Negron was there one night, and he came up to me after my set and he expressed that he liked 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 what I was doing. And then we started talking, and he said, hey, "I told him I don't know how this came up, but he had a house in the Hollywood foothills, and there was an apartment on the first floor. It was set into a hill, and there was a small apartment on the bottom floor." And he said, "Do you want to uh, do you want to rent my place?" And I was like, "Sure, absolutely." And so uh, I lived downstairs from Taylor for two years. Uh, and then I got a place up on the top of Sunset Plaza Drive, a nice little kind of enchanted cottage up there, second house from the top of Sunset Plaza Drive in, Can- in Laurel Canyon. And so that's where I that's where I was for a long time. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I was I was in LA for for quite a while at that point. I kept I kept to, I was commuting back and forth between the two places pretty much for a year, and then I gave up the place in San Francisco and moved in with Taylor. God, I missed that guy. He was so brilliant. You know, it's funny. I never met him, but we had we had talked about him doing my show, and it was God like we had scheduled it, and he was coming down here. He didn't have a car, and it was like three months before he passed away and he's like oh I have to go to the hospital for some tests and it was just weird because I really wanted him on my show and then when I heard the news I was like well now it makes sense you know what I mean like he was going to the hospital for tests that ended up you know he said he didn't he was very vague about it because he didn't know me but it was just uh, it was interesting yeah we uh, you know it was interesting for me too because about two years ago I guess two years ago this summer uh, we were talking, and he said, hey, come into New York, because, you know, I'm just a train ride into New York, uh, our train ride. And he said, come into New York. I'll make you lunch. We'll hang out. Let's catch up. We haven't seen each other in a long time. And I went in, and he made me lunch, and we hung out and chatted and talked about old times. And he told me about having cancer, but he spoke, in it, spoke of it in terms of having beaten it. And... Looking back now, I kind of figure that he had not beaten it, and I'm pretty pretty sure at this point that he was calling me into New York to hang out with him to say goodbye. Okay. And uh, boy, that was a tough one because uh, you know he died something like five or six months after Robin died, and uh, Robin and I had become pretty tight during that time that I was in San Francisco. They used to have me over for Easter and Christmas and Thanksgiving at their house and that sort of thing. And uh, so that one hit me hard. And that's coming up August 11th. That's coming up in about a week, two years that he's been gone. It's wild. You know, it's funny when um, when they had the memorial for Robin at the comedy store. I, I went with Martyr, Jeff Martyr. But me and my girlfriend were out right. for breakfast that morning in Studio City and uh, we saw Overton, and you could just tell, and, and Rick was on the show a little while ago again, but he was, you could tell he was just devastated. I mean, it was sitting there, you know, you could just, he just looked wiped out. And it was, you know, and it was a great, it was a great little benefit to him. It was in the main room of the uh, comedy store. Just really, people had really good stories, and I'll tell you, Alan Steven brought that freaking house down. In, in what way? 
he just had a set and the stories talking about him and Robin going to Stephen Stills' house with his mother and this just so with Robin's mother. No, Stephen Stills' mother. <laughs> oh, that's and his, funny. His mother's like, oh my god, Mork's here because his mother was Stephen Stills' mother. I mean, it was just, it was just one of those nice. They, everyone was uh, just had really good stories about him. You know, it was, it was very cool because I was, I wasn't living out here at that time, so it was very interesting. Robin, speaking of moms, Robin's mom was really a character, and we had one of the nights when we were having dinner. She was there, it was like a Thanksgiving or something, and and. She said, you are such a nice boy. And I said, oh, thank you. She goes, your mother must be very proud of you. I said, she could be prouder. I said, you should tell her. And she said, I will. Give me her address. She gave her the address. <laughs> and like a week later, my mom calls me up. She goes, I just got a nice card from Robin's mom telling her how much, telling me how much she loved you. <laughs> That's hysterical. That sounds like my mom would do. So, okay, now I want to switch to, we're going to switch topics to men fake foreplay. Sure. Because we've been talking about your career, and uh, now how did how did Men Fake Foreplay come about? And tell listeners what it is and what it's all about. And I, I know you've toured with it, and you're trying to get it up. You're going to start performing it again. Yeah, I'm going to do it in San Francisco again. I'll just wrap up the writing career by saying that I um, I worked uh, uh, I did the Keenan Ivory Wayans show. Worked on that for nine months, and then one of the producers from that went to um, the Magic Hour and said, uh, he called me up and he said, you want to write on this show? I said, sure. So I did, and it was, you know, very odd. And, you know, and for a while I had been getting the idea that I don't want to write for people anymore. This was never part of the dream. I want to write my own performance. Actually, this does segue into Men Fake Foreplay. I want to write my own stuff for my own performances. And uh, so I, I got some offers to write at some other shows after that. And I said, no, nah, I don't think so. And this guy, Stephen Allen Green, had been telling me that he thought for a while, for a few years, he had been saying, you'd do great in England, you'd do great in England. So I, uh, I started commuting back and forth to England after that and performing. I'd go there for two or three months at a time and then come back for a month and then go back for two or three. So I did that for about two years and what, performed in... What was the comedy scene? What was the difference of audiences in England and over here? Oh, they're really smart. Even the stupid people are smart over there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, even the lower class. It's, I mean, wit is so important over there, and the irony is so strong. You know, this is a great story. I had a, uh, uh, shortly after I got there and I was performing, I, I remarked to one of the British comedians, I said, oh, man, I said, the sense of irony here is unbelievable. I said, it's, I don't even get through the sentence, and they know it's irony. And he's like, well, you know, we say tomato, you say tomato. We say potato, you say potato. We say irony, you say huh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so then I, I also hooked up with Rich Hall while I was over there. He's done great in England. And I wrote a couple of pilots for, for Rich, one for BBC and one for Channel 4. And, uh, and I performed in Amsterdam and Ireland and Scotland and, uh, and Paris uh, and, and that was a, that was a great time. But I performed one man, men fake foreplay at the Edinburgh Festival in Scotland for a month, and I was brought on by by Rich's uh, manager and production team. So I was in a real nice venue, and that went well. But I start I actually started this uh, show in uh, in 2000. I did it in San Francisco in the summer of uh, of 2000, and uh, it might have been 2000. No, it was 2000. I did it there that summer. At a hundred seat theater there, 
and uh, that, that's where I started to develop it. And it kind of came about where I was looking around. One day I looked out, and I saw I was at a stop stoplight in Los Angeles, and I looked up at a billboard, and it was like a naked leg with garters on it or something, and it was Share the Fantasy, and it was an ad for, uh, what was that stripper movie that uh, the girl from Save? Uh, yeah, uh, you, no, 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 um, Showgirls. Yeah, the girl from Saved by the yeah. Bell, Elizabeth. Uh, and I, I, all of a sudden it hit me. I said, oh, you know what? The world has turned into Pottersville. You know, I, I grew up in this kind of nice little town with woods behind me in New Jersey. And you look around and, you know, I grew up in Bedford Falls. And suddenly I'm looking around and strip clubs picking up everywhere. And, and I thought the world's turned into Pottersville. And uh, from that idea... I, uh, I kind of write that, wrote that show from, from that impetus, but it was also because it's a bit of an homage to my father. I had three sisters, and I had a, uh, a brother, and my father would always say, you will respect your mother, you'll respect your sisters, and you'll respect women. And it was real important to him. And then I went out into the world, and I saw, I saw that, uh, that that's not, uh, not as much of that going on as you might hope there would be. So I started addressing it with the comedy. Um, and, uh, you know, I started writing this show about treating women better. It's men fake foreplay. It's not as glib as it initially sounds. It's a very considered, but, you know, funny, but very considered look at trying to become a man in a boys will be boys world, you know, stepping up, not blaming women for your problems. You know, maybe she's not a bitch. Maybe you're an idiot. Just that point of view. But it's also very compassionate to men in that, of course, we are the way we are. Look at the cultural influences that shape our character as we grow into men. And so I use the comedy in the show to uh, kind of deconstruct and ridicule the things that don't work for us. And by extension, women and by extension, children, women being the primary caregiver. So I use the, the comedy to deconstruct that stuff. And then I kind of reconstruct a parallel ideal uh, to go with it that just kind of by nature of making sense you go yeah yeah i guess the world i guess it could be a little better if we were not you know if we were not led by our appetites you know and kind of one of the notes in the show one of the parts of the show is a man led by his appetites is a liability a man led by his appetites is still a boy but that's a lesson that came to me after i cheated on a woman and had no idea why okay but uh so I've been doing the show. Uh, I, I had a nice run at a season of subscription performing arts centers uh, all over the country. And then I ended up getting rid of my agent because he did something uh, underhanded with one of his other clients. And I said, I'm not interested in working with you anymore. But these, these subscription performing arts centers, they book anywhere from a year to 18 months ahead of time. So it cost me uh, about a year and a half and in that time, I got an opportunity to work for Carnival Cruises. So I did stand up on Carnival Cruises for a couple of years, and it was nice. I got to go to a lot of places, a bunch of times in Europe, to Dubrovnik, Croatia, and, and Venice, and Rome, and Pisa, and Marseille, and Barcelona. And yeah, it was real nice to do, but then, you know, then I, I, again, I found myself kind of antsy being on ships going, again, this was not what I wanted to do. And so I've been uh, doing rewrites on the show and doing Skype rehearsals with my director and working on getting some bookings starting in the late fall. I'm going to launch it in San Francisco again because I'll be able to get some pretty good press there. 
no. and uh, looking to take it the distance. Man, it's a it's a behemoth as far as trying to get something like this to work on all cylinders because there's so many elements to getting it right. Like, what are some of the elements? I mean, when you say that, because because what I always think also is when you started writing it because it's it's not all straight up comedy, and uh, I mean if it's it's a one man show, and you know what's it like when it's you're used to doing joke joke joke. It must be a different transition for you. Uh, yeah, it very much is. And, uh, you know, while I also wrote the book, it's based on the book I wrote, you mentioned. Um, it's based on the book. And so writing the book was really kind of hard because I do set up, punch, set up, punch, set up, punch, and find yourself trying to express maybe some some elaborate idea that's got a few different elements that have to come together and then you realize these the two three days i've been working on this one part and i can't really get it to work or you all so you know you find that something that you can do on stage with a little bit of attitude or a shrug of the shoulders or you know suddenly that takes a paragraph to communicate that so i kind of had to teach myself how to write a book while i was writing it and uh that worked out pretty well, actually, because I was talking to Provenza, and I said, well, I don't really see, you know, every TV show and every TV commercial makes the guy out to be an idiot. And, uh, you know, the woman always comes in and saves the day. And he said, well, Raymond's not really like that. Everyone loves Raymond isn't really like that. And actually, I, was, I wrote the book while I was waiting. I, I hooked Paul up with my agent in England, and I was waiting for him to come back to direct it. And he just ended up staying there. But that's when I wrote the book. And he said, well, you know, uh, he said, Raymond, you know, the guy does the right thing. And I said, yeah, it makes sense. So I knew Rory Rosegarten, Ray's manager from New York. Hadn't talked to him in like 15 years. And I called him up, told him about this book. And I said, hey, uh, you know, I got, he said, send me a copy of it. So I sent it to him. And then like, I don't know, like three days later, he calls me up. He goes, Dugan, Rosegarten. Listen, why'd you, what are you, selfish? Why'd you only send me one copy of this book? I had to send my copy over to the senior vice president of literary at William Morris, and now I don't have one. And I said, I said that's a good thing, right? He goes, yeah, that's a great thing. He said, we'll, we'll sell this. This is a good book. And uh, William Morris sent it out to like five publishers, and one of them bought it. Uh, I didn't get a rejection slip. or, You know, it's kind of the, the cool things that happened in my life just kind of happened that way, which has been pretty nice. And uh, so, uh, yeah, so it is hard. And development in San Francisco was a really good <clears throat> opportunity because I would open it up to questions afterwards and feedback and that sort of thing. It was a small, you know, it was a small little theater. So getting to work on it all summer, that helped a lot. And, yeah, it's a little, it's a little it feels a little creepy because you're like, how, how much am I being self-indulgent? Because, you know, those, a lot of those solo shows are like, and then my dad hit me. Oh, come on. Right. Um, but you had to mix it together and it's a really, you know, there's several arcs that go through it. It goes from being very, very funny in the beginning to the, the laughs or they space out a little, little bit more as you go along. There's an arc of watching the trajectory of a man's life as he starts to learn some things and reconsider some things. And so the character kind of grows from a, an impetuous boy into a responsible man and, so I mean, it's a tight weave, and it's been it's been a lot of work. But I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. But yeah, that is really hard to figure out. And I never, 
you know, sometimes I, I, I hit it. Sometimes there were times where I didn't really feel like I hit it. But I don't even take a, uh, it's written in two acts, but I won't take an intermission because I have to finesse the end of act one into act two because at the end of act one, I cheat on a woman and I have no idea why. And act two is about figuring out after she left me, figuring out, wait a second, do I run my sex drive or does my sex drive run me? And uh, so, yeah, so it gets pretty serious. But that, but it's worked out because all of the reviews I get are, it's all hilarious and important. Hilarious and necessary are kind of the reviews that I've gotten. And uh, I got a nice quote from Ben Vereen. He came to my show when I did it in Los Angeles and a bunch of other people. That was a neat night. And, uh, you know, I've gotten, I've gotten a lot of support. I've gotten a lot of celebrity support. Do you know who Marianne Williamson is? Sounds very familiar. Is she a singer? No, she's an author. Okay. And she ran for, she ran for Congress last year. I don't know if you've heard anything about that, but she's a, like, four-time number one uh, New York Times bestselling author. She hit number one, like, four times. A Woman's Worth, Return to Love. She's into that whole Course of Miracles thing. Okay, but uh, she's a fan and a friend, and she helped me produce it in Los Angeles and promoted it to everybody on her website, and that really helped a lot. And uh, I'm excited to get it back up again. Now, from when it started, and you said you said you started it around 2000. Yeah. Okay. Now, has the script? I mean, the script, the performance for the show. Has it changed, and as, as, as you get older, have some of your opinions changed that would go into the new version or the script you're going to be putting out on the next show? Good question. That's exactly why I'm doing the rewrites on it. And I'm finding out, I'm feeling like some of the jokes that I did in the earlier ver- versions are a little bit too glib for how I feel now or for how I am now as a man who's a little bit older. So, um, yeah, I'm finding, I'm finding some differences in that. Now, how did you end up back in New Jersey? My ex moved my kids to New Jersey. I've got three daughters. They're now 14, 12, and 10. And she moved them to New Jersey to be near her parents. And uh, essentially, I followed. Which is kind of weird, you know, because, you know, as a comic and with the experience that I've had of the caliber of people that I've been able to play with throughout my life, uh, it's not going on out here. You know, I need, I need smart, playful, creative, engaged people um, to work at my best. And I'm fine. I got a nice little cottage out in the woods. I got a thousand acre uh, land and water preserve behind my house. I built my daughter's a nice tree house with, you know, cedar shingles on it. I'm looking at it right now from my desk. And uh, so it's good. I'm glad that I get to be there for my kids and that I've been there <clears throat> as they've been developing. But, you know, they're, they're, they've gotten to the age now where they, they, they're pretty much who they are to an extent. So I'm ready to get back and focus on my, on my own show and take it the distance. Now, when you start your show, you're going to do it in San Francisco. Do you already have a date set for it? Or are you a little trepidatious because you are changing a little bit? And it, it was proven a success and a good reviews. And you know the old saying is, if it's not broke, you know, don't, don't try fix. to fix it. Yeah, has that gone through your mind at all? Uh, yeah, and I'm doing the work, but you, you know the thing is, I've got thousands and thousands of pages of stuff that I've written, and I'm combing through all of it to see if it applies. 
to see if it's, there's a place that I can put it in. I'm cleaning up some of the transitions. You know, some of the jokes I wrote, I wrote around the jokes in some of the sections. And so I want them to flow a little bit more organically than they do in the sections. It's a little stand-up-y, um, which isn't too bad, but I just want to make sure that they're not shoehorned in. So I'm writing segues and transitions and just polishing up. The whole, you know, the through line to the story is pretty much the same. I'm just changing the ornaments on the tree. Now, when you say you want to take it the distance, what do you mean by that? Well... You know, I've had varying degrees of success with it along the way. Um, but, oh, you, you were asking this. You were asking about how, how detailed is it, how many variables are there, what elements go in, into it when you do a one-man show like this. Well, you know, I'm writer, not director. I have a director, but I've been producing it myself. I put together the radio ads. I built my website. I... Um, put together all of the graphics for it, all the advertising, uh, copy, uh, every element of the production uh, you have to do yourself, or I've had to do myself. And so uh, just the idea of taking care of all of those logistics and then putting it up on a stage somewhere, it's just a huge, it's a huge undertaking to get all those elements to click at the same time. And now would you want it to end up being on film, or I mean, what would you like? What what would if someone said this is where this is going to go? What would the perfect idea be for you for your show? Where would it be? Well, I want to tour it. I want to tour it in theaters and pick up an audience for it in theaters. And I, I do know that when I get it up in front of people who can get some things done, they get some things done about it. People like it, and uh, so I want to do it in theaters. And if you think about like a, a ninety minute film of it, or a cutting it down to maybe an hour and 15 for an HBO special or something. But I've always felt like um, somebody laying down, a sh you know, the show can make do very well and make a good income performing it live. And I think that the only time that you'd want to put it on film is when you're ready to put it to bed and move on to something else. Because, you've, you know, you've burned it. You've burned it for maybe maybe a couple hundred grand or something that you're going to get for putting it on film. But, you know, if it hits, you get more. But you know what I'm saying? Like for an if HBO bought it or something, you don't, you don't get as much as you could for, for the performance, for now, the live performance. Now, are you, are you done with stand-up completely? No, I'm actually still doing it here and there, staying on top of it and uh, taking gigs here and there, some corporates and stuff. But, you know, it's not like it used to be either. I'm not a name that puts asses into seats. And so, you know, if you're a draw, you can make a real good living at it. And if you're not, um, you know, the market is saturated. It's a buyer's market. There's a million comedians out there. And especially now that I'm on the East Coast, you know, I haven't been here for basically 25 years. And, uh, you know, everybody, there's a lot of young kids who have come up, and there's a lot of people who have established relationships with bookers and stuff. I, I actually haven't really pursued it that much, but when stuff comes up, I do it. And now everybody sells merch. Yeah, well, I've always sold my books at my shows, but that's, you know, it's a book, so I don't have merch. I don't have, I don't sell, I haven't sold any DVDs or You got no CDs. Dugan shirts? You got no Dugan shirts? <laughs> T-shirts, men fake four-plate T-shirts. You know, that may come down the road if there's a market for it, but it's never something I really kind of concentrated on. And now, do you ever just sit down and write jokes just for the hell of it? 
just you know not for your show but just to you know when you're doing Facebook when you post stuff is that just for you having fun it's mostly me just having fun or something I'll get an idea and I'll just throw it up on Facebook especially if it has a uh, if it has a half-life to it you know if it's something that's topical and it's going to come and go in a few days but I'm always writing something. Like I said, I've got, I don't know, I've probably got, I've got about 60 journals that are full of writing, and I've probably got about a couple, few thousand loose pages of stuff, index cards, all sorts of stuff, and that's one of the things that I'm doing now is going through all of that stuff and, you know, see if I can turn some of it into probably another book or two. Now, how long did it take you to get used to the New Jersey weather after coming from sunny California? Uh, not long, I don't think, because I like it. I love the thunderstorms. Like I said, I'm out in the woods. I'm digging it. You know, what? a couple of years ago, I said I got this little cottage in the woods. This is a little Unabomber shack I'm living in there. <laughs> and uh, I, about uh, two years ago, I was sitting at my desk writing, and all of a sudden, boom! It was There was a storm. Boom! And I felt the shock and into my heart like electric shock it wasn't adrenaline you know like oh I got startled and because by that big boom it wasn't adrenaline it was literally an electric shock in my heart that, uh, a tree got hit by lightning about 100 feet from me wow it's funny I, yeah. I, I wasn't back for a long time and then before my girlfriend moved back here out here I went back every uh, like once a month for two years and you, you forget, like, every weekend it was raining. And I was like, oh, I'll be okay in L.A. But you do miss the certain things about it that is when you see a big lightning bolt, it's cool. It's something that you go, this is what nature is. Yeah, I saw last week I saw the blackest cloud I have ever seen. The whole sky was black, and then lightning started showing up in the middle of it. But, you know, I like the green. I like all the trees. I like the green. I, li- I, I like it out I like it out here a lot, except for the dearth of opportunity to play with my friends. Right. But I get to, you know, I hang out with them on Facebook. And there you go. Uh, yeah, I wrote a joke on Facebook the other day. Did you see um, Did you see when Eric Trump spoke at the Republican? Yeah. I see if I can remember this from beginning to end. I said, um, uh, Eric, Tr- Eric Trump said, Eric Eric Trump said, my father, more in 13 minutes, sorry, Eric Trump, Eric Trump said, my father, sorry, Eric Trump said, my father, more times in 13 minutes than Jesus did in 33 years. <laughs> so that, that was one where I went like, ah, yeah, that, that's broadcast quality. So. Exactly. Well, you know what? Our hour is almost up. Uh, do you tweet? Do you tweet? Uh, you know what? I don't. I probably will again, but I haven't done anything in a couple of years. I don't think I've tweeted. And I just we- never really pursued it. And your website is menfakeforeplay.com? Yeah, there's like a six and a half minute clip of me, of some excerpts of me performing at the uh, Palace in Albany, New York uh, on that website. And uh, uh, yeah, some good reviews. It's pretty much an EPK, that website, but... Well- electronic press kit for I, want, I want to thank you for coming on Mike hey it was a delight I had a great time Steve I had no idea really what to expect so right. it was a, you're, you're a terrific interviewer thank you you know gee I got to talk about myself exactly people <laughs> go to his uh, website men for fake foreplay.com go to my website coopertalk.net I have over 540 episodes up there email me cooper at coopertalk.net follow me on twitter that's at coopertalk you can go to 
Words with Friends and Instagram. I'm Cooper Talk One. I will play you. I'm okay. And my other website, StopTheSalt.com. That's my cookbook, Low Sodium Cooking for One. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. You can get it at Amazon. But if you get it at StopTheSalt.com, I make more money. And I'll even sign it for you. So keep listening to the show. Follow me on Twitter, at CooperTalk. Email me, Cooper, at CooperTalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will be talking to you guys next week. You have a great weekend. You hear?